Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in East European Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with Magda Romanska about her recent book, The Post-Traumatic Theater of Grotowski and Cantor, History and Holocaust in Acropolis and Dead Class, published by Anthem Press. Both Cantor and Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in East European Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with Magda Romanska about her recent book, The Post-Traumatic Theater of Grotowski and Cantor, History and Holocaust in Acropolis and Dead Class, published by Anthem Press. Both Cantor and Grotowski were acclaimed in the West for their avant-garde theater productions in the 1960s and 1970s, receiving high critical regard despite the fact that critics and audiences could not understand the Polish language of their plays. Romanska argues not against Cantor's and Grotowski's influence on avant-garde theater, but rather for a more nuanced understanding of their work. As she states in her introduction, this book attempts the impossible, to turn back the clock and re-deliver both Grotowski and Cantor in all their obscure, difficult, multi-layered, funny-sounding Polish glory, with all of the complex and convoluted contextual and textual details of their two seminal performance pieces, Acropolis, and Dead Class. I found this to be a fascinating study of two playwrights and two plays, of Polish culture and of avant-garde theater. I'm looking forward to discussing the book with Magda today. So welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Magda. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Well, good. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation about your book, but for how perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested um, in this topic and in studying uh, Polish theater? Well, I, I grew up in Poland, and I moved to the U.S. when I was um, in my early 20s. Um, so, um, so, so I became interested in theater in general uh, first. And then um, there seemed to be a gap in the scholarship, in American scholarship, on the topic of Polish theater, despite um, the fact that Polish theater has been so influential on American avant-garde, particularly, you know, since the 60s. Um, and so there um, there seemed to be a need to provide a kind of a contextual historical analysis of those two very influential avant-garde directors. Um, and so um, so I seem to be, you know, the right person for the job, so to speak, um, uh, having grown up in that culture and also understanding um, American academia and American um, theater um, mm-hmm. at, the, at the crossroad of those two to, to cultural um, to cultural landscape, um, it seemed a natural uh, research topic for me. Great. And to start off, why don't you tell us briefly about Cantor and Grotowski and their influence on avant-garde theater in the 1960s and 1970s? And perhaps as part of that, you can t- explain the difference for us between Cantor's poor theater and Grotowski's poor theater. Well, we have to understand something um, after the World War II, um, when the communist, um, you know, govern, the Polish communist government actually um, spent quite a lot of money on art in Poland, and particularly on theater, because it was seen as a kind of um, postcard, um, um, a business card of of how how well um, you know how well artists are doing in Poland, and so government would you know would spend and support. Also, the different avant-garde experiments, which then they would send to different festivals and abroad to showcase what a great theater we will, you know, we were doing. We were Poland had, and um, and so out of that climate, it was a very fruitful climate in many ways, despite the fact that there was a censorship and despite all of the other limitations, politically speaking, um, it was also a very um, a nurturing environment for the artists. Um, and, and, and they had to sort of learn to speak 
um, between the lines um, to say things that could not be said openly. And, um, you know, like art thrives on limits in some way. Um, and, and so um, the symbolic language that both of them are using um, had a chance to develop and to grow out of that environment, out of that climate. And um, by the time, you know, when Grotowski came to America in the late 60s, and when Cantor came to America in mid-70s, um, this was a very ripe ground, very ripe moment for American culture to receive the type of avant-garde experimentations in theater. Particularly Grotowski was, uh, was especially influential. Um, his philosophy of work, of art, of theater, seemed to mesh very well with um, the late 60s uh, philosophy um, espoused by many um, artists of the moment of a kind of a search for yourself, search for broader meaning, trying to find some communal experience in, in artistic endeavor. And so he seemed to match very well with the current, with the zeitgeist of the of the of the moment. Um, Cantor did not match as well. By the time he came in the late sixties with his production of that class to New York, the environment changed a little bit, and he was never as embraced by American avant-garde and by American um, academic circles and artistic circles in the same way that Grotowski was embraced. Um, almost there was a sort of a sub. Uh, the subculture of people who were interested in Cantor, um, and Grotowski became more of a, I would say, mainstream theater person. Um, and so, um, but nonetheless, um, among the people who, who, who did know about Cantor and who did like his work, um, he has been very influential. You know, people like uh, Moise Kaufman, who was um, one of the authors of the Laramie Project, for example, and um, um, Robert Wilson, um, are very influenced of, by Cantor's work. Um, and so, um, so those influences are kind of, we can see them throughout the, um, the, in the even modern American theater. We can see them on kind of, um, surfacing in different, in different works, in different pe- people's, um, people's, um, work. Mm-hmm. And they both espouse something called poor theory, which in English, it's, poor theory, but the Polish words, the Polish phrases are different and their approaches and what they meant by poor theory were different. Yeah, it's that the poor theater, um, the concept of poor theater in poly, in, yeah, it's kind of a, a little bit ironic because they, both Cantor and Grotowski kind of didn't like each other very much and they believe that each one of them is original in its own right. And in Polish language, um, and there's two concepts, Teatr Biedny and and Teatr Uboki are very different concepts, but in American, you know, in English and in German, in French, um, this has been always translated by one term, a poor theater. And, um, but it's a little bit different, um, different uh, concept. In Grotowski, poor theater means that you basically are getting rid of the props, the set, everything else that's not necessary, people lived for expression, and you only leave an actor. The act, the theater cannot happen without an actor. Like the actor is the grounding, the focal point of any artistic, um, theatrical representation. And, and so basically poor theater is a theater in which you only work with your own body, with your own, um, emotions and with your own, um, um, physicality. Um, for, um, for counter this, the word poor theater, had a little bit more nuanced um, meaning. Um, it not just denoted a poverty, like being poor, but also a certain sense of being desolate, uh, being abandoned, being um, left in the you know um, for um, you know, being being left uh, out of um, on the desert or anywhere in some kind of a vast landscape. Um, so this 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 word poor theater means um, it's a theater of uh, people objects discarded um, uh, those things emotions um, marginalized um, human beings um, the the object found the, the, 
from kind of you know he comes from the from the Shams concept of a found object, but also the idea of uh, found people, the people who have been discarded, um, marginalized. So this theater is trying to excavate that kind of um, um, poor, uh, poor, um, poor world, um, the world of people and objects which have been um, you know left and discarded in some way. And so mm-hmm. it's also, there is a little bit different uh, different meaning in the way that they both approached of you know, of of poor theater, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that uh, Grotowski and Cantor were received differently in the West, and particularly in the United States, but they were also received differently in Poland. Can, so can you talk about that and about how even though they were both drawing from the same Polish cultural and literary roots, um, their work was actually um, perceived quite differently um, within Poland. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's sort of interesting um, to see how those two directors um, were received in Poland. Um, Grotowski was always treated a little bit with suspicion, um, mostly because um, I think you know, that seems to me is because of his. Um, um, the idea that he was trying to kind of explore to breach um, sacred with the profane, and um, and that that didn't really mesh with Polish um, with Polish um, culture and with, with the way that even Polish artists understand the role of theater. Um, theater in Poland is an intellectual affair. It isn't supposed to be like a spiritual journey. Like if you want a spiritual journey, you go to like church or synagogue. You know, you like you don't trying to replicate um, a godly feeling in theater, and that's not how Polish actors are trained to act. Um, they are trained to um, to transmit uh, certain actual and emotional as well, but not in the way that's supposed to like take you in and 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 um, and completely. You know, change your whole framework. Um, like the, it's it's not theater doesn't try to be a church, and in Grotowski sort of mixing this ritual the ritual with theatrical experience, he was trying to replicate that kind of um, um, church like emotion. You know, Peter Brook called his uh, spectacle Acropolis Black Mass, and uh, in Poland, Grotowski was always kind of seen like a little bit cultish. Um, like you, you know, the people who sort of um, didn't really have their stuff together would be going working for Gotowski, trying to find themselves. Um, and like you know, um, you're supposed to go to theater and work in theater once you already found yourself and you know what you want to do. In, in you know, Grotowski's uh, group functioned as a sort of a way vehicle for trying to find yourself. The art, art and theater as a vehicle of trying to find yourself. And that's that's not really that doesn't really mesh well with Polish uh, spirit, so to speak. Like Poles are much more, you know, um, I would not cynical, but more um, enjoy more irony and enjoy more kind of um, ironic and detached way of dealing with serious issues. Sort of the the, the kind of um, approach that uh, combines the tragic with the grotesque. You know, uses a, a kind of a black humor to deal with the history and to deal with uh, all of the horrible things that happened, you know, to Poland throughout the, throughout the, um, the last you know, three centuries. And so, um, and so that kind of seriousness and the lack of irony and the lack of sense of humor um, that kind of earnestness uh, of Gotowski's work, what didn't really mesh well with Polish psychic. Um, Cantor, on the other hand, um, people, people always had a certain, um, reverence and respect for him and he has been always well known even among people who were not involved in theater he's a basically household name like everybody knows who Cantor is in Poland um, but his work was mixing blending that kind of tragic ridiculous absurd aspect of life um, with um, with more serious aspects of life and so it was kind of always more fitting, more in tune with the with the Polish, uh, with the way that Poles deal with with reality, with the, the way that Poles deal with their history. Um, and his work is also a kind of a blend of the tragic moments that turn into grotesque, and vice versa. 
grotesque moments that turn into um, into um, a, a tragic moments. And so the the line between the tragedy and grotesque is very thin. And and at any minute, you don't know you're gonna laugh or you're gonna cry. You're sort of always on the edge between those two. And so and so this was this was the major difference, and this is one reason why I think um, um, people in Poland um, just didn't really wanted to connect. No, uh, didn't really wanted to engage with Grotowski as much. He he seemed too uh, too artificial in some way. In his earnestness, he seemed too self righteous. Well, I'd like to uh, take each of these and works in turn and talk about them in, in more detail because you argue that the subtleties in the Polish cultural context of both of their works, particularly in Acropolis and the Dead Class, are lost in what you say is the lack of translation because the plays were performed in Polish in the West and therefore neither the critics nor the audiences actually understood the text of the plays. So let's first look at um, Grotowski's Acropolis, which you um, call an attempt to capture condense and understand the new 20th century Polish consciousness, one forever framed by the smoke from the Auschwitz ovens. So can you first, in a sense, set the stage for us and tell us about what this play, describe the play and its production so that then we can talk about the the actual meanings and interpretations in the play? The production of uh, Acropolis was uh, based on um, um, this play of the same title by Stanisław Wyspiański, who was a late 19th, early 20th century Polish playwright, but also a painter and um, an, an architect. And um, the one thing which Wyspiański did way before any other European playwrights have done so, um, he wrote those monumental works, which um, combined all kinds of different elements from drama, opera, and um, visual art, and, and they were um, they were a blend of um, different genres and different um, um, different approaches. So this is a sort of a, the, the one of he was fascinated by um, uh, Wagner um, a term of total total artwork uh, artwork which would combine all different artworks. And so Acropolis is this is this blend of 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 different um, of different um, genres. And um, the, the play takes place in, in uh, at Wawel, which is the Polish castle, uh, when the king used to used to reside. And it's um, the, the entire thing happens during one night when all of the images from the paintings in the castle come to life to tell a Polish history, basically. So um, what Gotowski did with this, he took this play and he put it, uh, staged it in Auschwitz. Um, but not so much staged a play in Auschwitz, but staged a play within a play. And let me explain it to you. His second and very important influence was Tadeusz Borowski, who was a Polish um, writer um, who um, most famous um, most famous book is um, This Way, Ladies and Gentlemen, to the, to the Ovens. Um, it's um, it's a collection of short stories um, from um, from the time when you know when he was in, in Auschwitz, and uh, Borowski's writing style is very is very difficult to read um, because there is really no any no heroism in his writing. He basically narrates what happened with a kind of cold cold uh, objectivity, um, trying to make the reader understand this world, um, this world in which the, the human values are completely reversed and this becomes normalized. Um, so there is nobody there who actually can question it because it's so it's normalized. Um, the reversal of human values is so normalized that, um, that for us who read it, uh, it's shocking. And so the one scene in the in the in the one of in, in one of the short stories, there is a scene where he describes how they work all day, they work until they you know, until they die, and uh, he wonders what's going to happen um, with us um, if when the Nazi win, um, what's going to happen? The the monuments that we build, the next generations are going to come, and they're going to admire those monuments. Um, this is you know. 
compares himself to the workers who built the pyramids. Nobody really knows who they were. Um, we go to look at the pyramids. Um, so what's going to happen when the Nazi win? Are they going to redefine what's justice, redefine what humanity? Are they, what's going to happen to poetry? What's going to happen to art? So he wonders about that. And so Grotowski took this one passage and created this spectacle in which the prisoners work to build um, an oven. They're building an oven um, in Auschwitz. And as they do that, to amuse themselves, to pass time, they perform scenes from Acropolis, from Vespiansky's Acropolis. So it becomes a kind of a meta play within the play in some way, uh, where Borowski's story is a framework, and then Vespiansky text becomes something that they performed um, as a as a way to pass the time. But then at some point we lose this um, we lose this meta distance, and the actors become who they per, who they perform. For the moment, they become, you know, Rachel, they become this, they become that. And so, um, and so the, the, um, the idea for the production was, was kind of interesting was that Grotowski was trying to keep his actors both very close to the audience members, but psychologically as if they were in different dimension. Um, and so they are very much, very close to the people that they perform, but the, um, there is a certain distance, psychological distance between them and the, and the people that, that see the, the production. Um, so this, some, there was um, um, a lot of research that came out in Poland during that time was um, psychiatric research on the condition of a Muslim manner in Auschwitz. Um, the idea how people survived. And so a lot of people who, who survived in a way, survive because they tune out. Um, they became autistic, like almost extremely autistic, by turning off all of the psychological processes and just preoccupying themselves with pure survival. Um, so Italian philosopher um, um, Giorgio Agamben calls it a pure condition of pure life. That you become pure life, but there is the psyche is gone. And so Grotowski was very much influenced by the research. This has this this research came out like within 10, 15 years after, after the war in Poland, um, uh, psychiatrists were, uh, were researching the survival, the, the survivors, and trying to figure out what happened, what psychologically happened when you're in these extreme conditions of extreme humiliation, hunger, and, um, and deprivation. And so what they found out is that people are kind of tuning out their psychology and it, the, the, all of the kind of what makes you human being. You turn it off. And so um, Grotowski was trying to like replicate that, that idea that you become a husk of a human being, you just become a automatic, um, you perform certain movements, you, you think about survival, but there is really no, um, no life inside you, like, or, or like rather you are a pure life without, without a soul, so to speak. And so, um, and so this, was, um, this was one of the more interesting aspects of this production, but also one that um, brought a lot of controversy. Um, you know, what, can't, you, can't you really turn that experience into a formal theatrical experiment? What are the ethical dimensions of that choice, of the aesthetic choice? Um, and so this was one of the, one of the controversies that around that particular production. So, mm-hmm. And as you explain in the book, Grotowski is playing with, four layers, the reality of the spectators, the reality of the concentration camp, the reality of Vespiansky's original Acropolis that the prisoners are reenacting, and then also Vespiansky's skepticism about the national ideals of Polish martyrology. And obviously that seems like the one that would be most likely to be missed by audiences and critics who don't actually understand uh, the Polish that's being spoken in the performance of the play. So what did these um, Western audiences miss and um, not understand about this play? Well, the one thing which um, um, which I think is important to remember that a lot of um, theater that was happening in Poland at the time could not really talk about many things openly. So you had to use images and symbols 
to pass certain messages on. And if you know cultural context, you're gonna miss those. Um, so I'm gonna give you one uh, example. Um, in Grotowski's in Acropolis, uh, very often actors would um, would lift their hands and move them in a kind of a dance like um, like leaves on the wind. Um, in the wind, they would move their hands in um, above their heads, and um, um, and American critics uh, interpreted this as a as um, um, a comment on the indifference of nature to human suffering. But this was actually a very literal image of um, of what happened to concentration camp inmates when they wanted to commit suicide. Or what they did, they would you know, the only way. To, to commit suicide, um, effective way was to you either run and then the guards would shut, you know, would shoot you, or you threw yourself on the electric fence and you got electrocuted. So this was a quick way of of killing yourself, and it, you know, um, it did give you back your autonomy. At least you were the one deciding when you wanted to die. And so, um, so for many people, this was you know this was a viable option, yeah, um, to go and. Um, when the prisoner threw themselves on the wires, um, this is what, how it was called, their body would be electrocuted and they would like shiver and shake for a while. And, um, and there are some pictures um, in archives um, you know, around Europe that you can find those prisoners. And so unless you actually understand that, unless you know um, that this is what was happening, you can't really interpret this gesture. And um, and you don't really know what it means. It's like, oh, they're dancing. Um, but they're not really dancing. What they're saying is that these are human beings who are pushed to the extreme and they're reclaiming their agency and they're reclaiming the only way that they can do it is by this gesture of self, you know, of, of killing yourself. And, um, and, um, and this is a horrible death, you know, in some way, but it's still a death that you choose. And so there is, um, this, 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 this is a very dense, um, image um, that people just completely missed, um, and so there, you know, there are other images like this as well, both in Cantor and in Grotowski's you know work. Mm-hmm. Well, let's turn to Cantor's Dead Class now. So again, can you tell us about the play itself? Describe what's happening on stage and in this production, and particularly about Cantor's use of the grotesque. Um, so um, Dead Class is was um, devised work that Cantor. Um, imagine himself. There is a text there. Um, the text is uh, based on Witkatz's, um a play, uh, Tumor Brainovich. And that's uh, a silly little absurdist play that was written by Witkatze at the, between the two wars. Um, Witkatze was a, as a kind of an enfant terrible of Polish culture. And with the wars, that's where he worked most most of most of his adult life. He was a painter and playwright and writer and novelist, and um, he um, was self-taught um, and um, was very interested in 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 sort of an abstract um, way of representing human experience, but also in um, kind of a formal experiments. With the form, Witkatz um, came up with this idea of a theater of pure form, where theater would sort of comment on itself foremost, and um, that you, you not so much um, to be this kind of like experience, like lived experience, but to be more of an intellectual formal formal um, experience, which you can um, um, analyze or which can tell you about something about. Uh, about um, about human life, but not in that kind of um, realistic mode, but more in abstract, um, absurd mode. Um, so, Witkatz's um, play often comment on that kind of pompous, you know, Polish martyrology or Polish uh, history in some, in many ways. Um, so, um, the the one thing about Witkatz that was sort of um, I think it's important for us to keep in mind is that. Um, when the Russian army entered Polish um, uh, Polish borders in 1939, Witkatz committed suicide. And so after um, war, when the Soviets um, came and 
the communist government was established, he became a sort of um, persona non grata because how can you talk about uh, Vitkatsi and not mention his suicide? And like, why did Vitkatsi kill himself? Because the Russian army entered Polish uh, Polish uh, borders. But of course, nobody could talk about Russian army entering Polish borders uh, because this was not really how the history was being presented. Uh, Germans attack us, but not the Russians. Yeah. Um, so I mean, this was the this was this was you know, how the history was being manufactured. And so, uh, poor Vitkatsi, um, despite the fact that he was such a um, he was so much ahead of his time in terms of his work, um, way ahead of the Theater of the Absurd, you know, way ahead of Beckett and UNESCO, um, he wrote those uh, highly experimental absurdist dramas. Um, but because you know, politically. It was he was not mentionable, so to speak. Um, he never really gained that much, um, you know, esteem as he potentially could on in European um, art world and in the global art world. And so, Cantor um, uh, was interested in Katzi for that particular for for many reasons, um, and he was sort of the first person who sort of excavated his work uh, from oblivion. And so um, the text which they're performing, it's a tumor brain of it. It's about this um, man who's so smart that he's almost stupid because he's too smart for his own good, so to speak. Um, he's so smart, but he cannot really understand how the world works because he's blinded by his own um, intellect, so to speak. Um, but um, Cantor's actors don't really perform the text so much. Like, it's they, like, grasp. Uh, to it, uh, bits and pieces, and um, and uh, the entire production is set in a classroom. Um, this is a classroom from before World War One. Um, they find out about World War One from the newspapers, and um, it's a kind of a ghastly classroom. Um, we don't know are those people alive? Are those people dead? Are they coming back to this classroom because they're all adults? But now they are being thrown back into this classroom where they enact this strange play. Um, and sometimes they live, they are the parts, but sometimes they just kind of scream randomly um, the lines from the, from the play. And, um, and so we don't know, are they ghosts? Are they real? Um, are they adults? Are they children? Like, what are they? So in, um, in, this is a memory play. This is a play that sort of tries to capture that idea of you know, when you sit down and you look back at your life, like you know, where what the moment of childhood, what did become of us? What did what did happen to us? To all of the you know what happened to the to the people in this classroom? And so, of course, we know what happened to the people of this, in this classroom. You know, all of my, my majority of them probably have been killed during World War Two, and um, and so Cantor, in some ways, is trying to excavate you know his own um, childhood, but also this. This world of the the lost world of of Polish uh, no of Polish Jews and it has been such an integral element of Polish society for such a long time you know, almost um, thousand years um, of history have been obliterated within the within the you know six years um, before World War Two uh, one third of Polish uh, society had had Jewish um, you know had Jewish origins and after that uh, there was almost nobody left. And so the death class is trying to, to to almost like excavate that history and tell us that this is the you know, this this entire classroom is, is probably gone and there's nobody left. Um, and so and so um, it operates with these images and with the symbols again because this was not something that can be openly discussed. The Jewish materiology was not something that could be openly discussed in 1960s or 70s in you know in Poland um, and. And is is trying to capture that sense of loss, of what has been lost, um, what can never be regained, and um, um, so so that's that's how the production is framed, so to speak. It, like Grotowski's work, critics in the West said that you didn't didn't have to actually understand Poland Polish to understand the plays, um, but. In this, you give the example that the critics would say that these actors were just shouting gibberish, but that the lines that they were saying would have been meaningful for 
um, a Polish audience. So what's what's one example of a line from the play that um, that Poles would understand um, not as gibberish, but as something very specific? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you an example of the image and some lines. So, for example, um, this um, this um, this one sentence, the eighth of March. Um, yeah, this is um, this refers back to the Roman, um, you know, the Roman Roman story of the of the betrayal, 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 and but in Poland at the time it also referred to March sixty um, eight when the remaining um, Jews were expelled um, um, from Poland to, to Israel um, due to the, you know, the communist government just basically shipped a bunch of citizens out of Poland, like they kicked them out. And so this was something that also was not being talked about in the mid-70s. And so when a country's actors say, it's of March, um, it's not just refers to the Roman history, but it refers to very recent Polish history, um, and, and so, um, and so you have to kind of know it. You have to understand, like you have to understand that this is what they're talking about, um, to to know that this is what they're referring to. Um, the the one image that people might not understand, which seems like it's a funny image, you know, the guy takes up, he takes off his pants, and everybody looks at him. Yeah, like he's naked. What does it mean? Um, and it's done in a kind of a funny way. So, uh, you know, like the, the guy basically, um, you know, ruins everybody, yeah? And, and it sort of feels like it's a grotesque little moment when the guy takes off his pants. And it's always funny when the guy takes off his pants, yeah? But um, this was, this is a very um, poignant scene um, because that's how, uh, you know, the Jews were identified. Um Take off your pants. Yeah, are you Jewish? Are you not? Um, and so, this scene, even though it's presented as being grotesque, it's 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 extremely tragic. It's extremely loaded scene um, because this talks about how the, your body can betray you. Um, you you know you're wearing you, on your body the mark of your culture, um, the mark of your people, and then it betrays you and you're being killed. And so, this decision of taking off your pants. Um, it's um, it's life and death moment, um, and so for American, you know, for people who don't know that, who don't know that this is how people have been, um, you no, know, identified by the Nazis, um, this just seems like it's a funny ha 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 moment, and it does. There is an element of grotesque in that when you think about it, like, and in some way, you know, Cantor. Um, makes us realize how grotesque this is. Um, that this life and death decisions uh, depend on on such as silly things in some way. Um, and so, you know, there is the kind of the kind of a bigger question about the nature of war and violence. Why do you choose to kill the other in some way? And those are typically very absurd, very grotesque reasons um, behind it. Yeah. And so, um, uh, you know, so, um, so this scene is very, is very loaded um, as well. Um, so if people don't understand those cues, those visual cues or those linguistic cues, um, the play, the production can still speak to you, um, I think. And it has been speaking to people throughout the last, you know, 40 years. Um, um, but um, I think it just enriches your understanding of it. If you are able to to read some of those um, those signs, um. so are these plays still being performed with some frequency? And how are the productions that are being done outside of Poland today? Are are they trying to draw out these um, cultural contexts, perhaps, and you know, program notes or introductions, or is it still are they are these pieces performances still? Done with an emphasis on their contribution to avant-garde theater. Well, I think it's it's almost impossible to restage this exactly, um, and I don't think anybody would really attempt it. But the people have been doing you know, experiments of trying to uh, to do something that would also comment and um, comment on the legacy of these works. 
So this year, because it's the 100th um, anniversary of Cantor's birth, there has been a lot of different events and productions happening around the world. Um, the, one of the more interesting ones that's just taking place right now, if you're in Los Angeles and anybody out there, uh, go see the Memory Machine by Lars America, um, um, who is doing a kind of a cantoresque um, performance about memory and the legacy of, of memory. Um, so those things are being done here and there um, in the style of Cantor or influenced by Cantor or in, uh, influenced by Grotowski, you know, Worcester Group um, did a kind of a metatatrical version of Acropolis uh, with Acropolis being played in on the screen, on the video, in the background. Um, so, um, so people, people do, you know, people do um, make Vespiansky's Acropolis. Or, you know, very difficult to do without acknowledging that Gotowski did Vespiansky's uh, production and how influential it was. So it's almost like he ruined the text for anybody else because now you have to engage with him in some way whenever you want to go back to this original script. Cantor's work has been very influential on, on Polish playwrights, even um, um, the, the production which um, may, may, people might be familiar with um, of uh, Tadeusz Wobodziamek R class, uh, which uh, deals with, which tells the story of, of a Polish Jews uh, live, um, growing up to and their fate and how they turn against each other. Um, um, the art class was very much influenced by by Cantor's work, the setting of the of the play, um, and and um, and the way that the play is told um, was very much influenced by Cantor's idea of memory and his idea of going back to the past and looking at these moments of of transition, of change, of when things broke apart in some way. So um, now to just look at your study of these plays. Uh, um you talk in the preface about how you had to draw from so many different disciplines and Slavic studies, history, critical theory, theater and performance studies. So how did you approach working from such diverse disciplinary perspectives um, on this work? What's, um, what's kind of an unfortunate thing is that um, we have, you know, we have like historically, we had theater departments and we had Slavic departments in the majority of American universities. And theater departments would study um, theater, uh, mostly Western theater, and the Slavic departments would study Slavic literature and Slavic theater. And um, that Slavic drama, um, not theater, the kind of old um, 19th, 18th century dramatic tradition, uh, was historically considered to be a dramatic uh, literature, and it was not always. It has not been studied in theater departments, and so it's not being considered um, a part of the theatrical global theatrical canon. It's being considered part of Eastern European literary canon, and so uh, this is a kind of a strange institutional um, history that legacy. That we, that we had to, we have to deal with the people who do us to write about Eastern European theater or Eastern European drama. We are kind of on the crossroad between all of those different um, ways of thinking about text and thinking about theatrical text. And so, so it was a little bit challenging because um, I always felt like I was explaining things. Um, uh, one way or the other for different groups. Um, but I also wanted to um, to provide a really deep contextual and historical um, analysis of these works. Um, and so, um, you know, so the students of theater and the students of Slavic literature can look at them and can understand the kind of web of meaning, the way that literature and theater and history come together. Um, in theatrical work, I mean, that's why theater is so interesting because it draws on all of those different uh, trends, but all of those different moments. It tries to, it tries to always be in the moment um, and respond to what's going on in culture and uh, in our historical circumstances. And so, and so it's, it was important to be that interdisciplinary in this particular context um, in order for, for, for this, um, create the discussion and create a common language 
between different scholars um, to be able to talk about um, those works and their connection to history and their connection to dramatic literature and their connection to um, the Polish culture at large and by extension to European culture um, and to the legacy of that culture and how do we really deal with that legacy. And the title of your book identifies these plays as post-traumatic theater. So why this term and why are trauma studies key to understanding these works? You know, there, there is like the concept of post-traumatic theater, which Hans, um, Hans Lehmann, um, a German theorist, uh, came up with. And for Lehmann, the idea of post-dramatic theater is a theater which, uh, um, which is non-dialogic um, and non-linear and theater which basically is no longer set in the kind of affective universe that makes sense. So all of the postmodern theater um, um, theater works can be um, made defined as post dramatic. And um, one point which Lemon makes in his book is that, in some way, perhaps we can ask whether this post dramatic theater, which is nonlinear, um, non dialogic, non chronological. Um, whether it was in some way the only way to respond to the to the trauma of World War II, um, when the language sort of failed, when there was no longer possibility of creating a coherent um, a dramatic narrative with the dramatic arc and catharsis at the end, uh, that seemed to be cathartic. Cathartic uh, moments seemed to elude. Um, seem to be no longer an adequate response to what happened um, in World War II, in some way facing to what happened. Um, you know, the kind of a mass genocide on the scale that's previously unthink of. Um, how do we deal with it? How do, the, how do we, as a humanity, how do we come to terms with, with what happened and how do we understand ourselves um, 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 in, that, in, that, in the context of what happened? And... Um, and so um, these this two terms, post-dramatic and post-traumatic, almost um, they sort of um, come together in some way. Trauma is the breakdown in narrative. The world no longer makes sense. You cannot really restructure it so easily with the narrative um, linear way of thinking through what happened. Um, you come through, you describe it, you absorb it, you talk about it in bits and pieces um, and making sense out of it in the same way that um, classic, um, the, the traditional realist drama makes sense of the world with the narrative arc, with the cathartic moment at the end, that this is no longer possible to do with the tra- traumatic event. Um, that you can process it and maybe represent it, but in a way that's not going to be so neat and so pretty and so tied up with that classic dramatic structure, that it's going to be broken down and the meaning will not be easily easily discernible. So we've talked a lot about your books, but there may be a question that I didn't ask or something that you think is important um, in your work. So this is an opportunity for you to um, tell us if there's uh, just something else about your book that I didn't bring up. Um, I think what's what's uh, what's interesting about Polish culture in particular is that because of its central location in in the middle of Europe, between those different forces, um, it's a it's a very interesting culture that sort of um, un- unwillingly captures a certain contradictory trend in our global culture as well. Um, and so um, those works of art, you know, um, the Ida, the Polish film, which is where one Oscar, um, the, the works of art that come out of Poland are always have to have to grapple with not just with the Polish specific um, history and, 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 and experience, but have to kind of grapple with the global currents as well, because those global currents are running through, you know, the country in some way, if that makes. Um, so I think that you know, there's two works that came out of Poland and that were so influential. 
um, for both um, uh, European and American theater. The one reason perhaps why they were so influential is that they sort of captured all of these anxieties, all of these contradictions of what it means to, to live in the modern world in some way. And how do you, you know, how do you know yourself and how do, um, how do humanity comes with, uh, with the power it has to destroy each other in some way? So thank you for giving us so much of your time. This has been a really interesting conversation. I always enjoy talking to scholars about their books um, and hearing their perspective on um, their work. And so I'd like to close by asking you what you're working on now. Um, I'm, um, right now I'm trying to, um, the project that I'm working on is, um, is on post-humanism um, and uh, the idea of, um, of kind of what happens um, after um, you know, the end of the humanist ethics, uh, so to speak, and um, the way that theater and art and representation deals with this um, 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 representations of the bionic bodies um, that cross over between human and non-human. You know, should we be scared of it? Should we welcome it? Uh, what does it really mean um, for us? Um, um, and also in the context of, uh, in the broader context of what it means um, um, for um, for our own um, understanding of what it means to be a human being. Um, in some ways, historically, theater and art has always um, uh, struggled with this idea of what it representing, you know, what it means to be human versus all the other unhuman objects and the subjects. And so right now, um, this question becomes um, more and more prominent across over um, between humans and machines. Those crossovers happen more and more often. Um, is this something that we should worry about or is this something that we should embrace? And so the research that I'm doing is has to do also with the representation of the disabled in our culture and um, how unwittingly they become um, in some way pioneers of that post-human aesthetic. Um, um, so that's, that's sort of my, my, my new project. Well, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to interview you about a book on that um, project in a few years from now. But uh, this has been a wonderful conversation and thank you very much for joining us. And also thanks to our listeners for listening in today. And we look forward to next month's conversation about a new book in East European Studies.